Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 349 of the podcast. It's September 23rd, 2019. And my guest today is John Dyer. He's president of his consulting firm, John Dyer and Associates, Inc., and he's author of the new book, The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership, which will be released on October 1st, 2019. It's available now for pre-ordering on Amazon. John has been a guest previously in episodes 229 and 280, talking about Dr. W. Edwards Deming, the Red Beat Experiment, and more. So today we talk about John's new book, um, how to find out if there is a facade of excellence in an organization, and why, as John says, why fear makes good people do stupid things. What is a facade? One dictionary says it's a false appearance that makes someone or something seem more pleasant or better than they really are. So I hope you'll enjoy today's conversation. If you want to find a link to John's book and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 349. Well, John, hi. Thank you for coming back and being a guest again on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So you know, we'll, we'll spend most of the time here talking about the book, but for people who haven't heard the previous episodes, and again, those are episodes 229 and 280, can you tell the audience a little bit about you and your background? Okay. Yeah. Uh, very succinctly, I started with General Electric. I was with GE for 10 years. Uh, during that time, I got interested in the whole continuous improvement uh, activity that was just getting off the ground at that time. I had the opportunity to uh, go around and collect best practices for GE on a two-year special assignment. During that time, I got a chance to uh, uh, meet and interact with Dr. Deming. I actually attended a, a couple of his classes. In fact, Mark, uh, I wanted to let you know that uh, I've got a special gift for you because I know you're a huge Deming fan as I am. Uh, the other day I was looking through some of my old notebooks from those classes that I attended with Dr. Deming and I had forgotten all about the fact that at one point in one of the classes, this was one of the classes where the number of participants was much smaller. So he had the opportunity to actually go around and talk to, you know, each of us individually for a time. And he wanted to know, you know, for me, what was going on at GE, what we were doing with our continuous improvement. Anyway, I had him sign the uh, first page of the notebook that we were using in the class. I've forgotten all about that, and it's been sitting on my bookshelf for 25 years. And I thought when I stumbled across it that you would uh, really appreciate that. So when I send you a copy of the book when it comes out, I will also send you uh, this cover page oh, with wow. Dr. Deming's signature on it. So you'll have, oh, great. have his autograph because I, I know I've got other things he signed. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I knew you would very much appreciate that. Yeah. Um, thank you. So I got a chance to, to learn all these things. Uh, while I was at GE, I actually also was asked to go into a manager's role to actually apply what I had learned from Dr. Deming and, and others uh, in our side-by-side um, -side refrigerator plant in Bloomington, Indiana. I basically had all of the technical resources in that plant working for me. Uh, the, the inspectors, quality engineers, industrial engineers, manufacturing engineers. Um, and I reference in my book several uh, stories from that time where we were just at the forefront of trying to get these things going. You know, this was before the Toyota way had been published, before the goal really had had uh, taken hold. Uh, nobody really knew anything about lean or, or you know, very little about Six Sigma. Um, so, you know, during that time, we were basically having to make things up as we went. Um, 
trying to get these things implemented and, and sticking, not only the tools and the methodologies, but also how do you change the culture? Right. Uh, so uh, we'll talk more about that when we get into the book. Anyway, uh, when I left GE, I joined a company called Ingersoll Rand. I worked for them for 10 years. Uh, again, mostly in the area of continuous improvement. The last four, I was a, a corporate vice president of, uh, of our Lean and Six Sigma implementations on a global scale. Had a couple of dozen really terrific resources that worked for me, and we were tasked with helping to spread um, Lean and Six Sigma throughout the company. Uh, and then uh, when I left Ingersoll Rand, I decided to start my own consulting company. And I've been doing that now for 13 years. Uh, what's interesting is, is the last couple of years since our previous podcast, uh, and this, this actually is part of why I wrote the book. Um, you know, I'm still working with a lot of manufacturing clients, but actually uh, the clients that have asked for the most help in the last couple of years have been non-manufacturing. So uh, things like government groups, um, universities, nonprofits. Uh, in fact, just yesterday, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I was with a, uh, a group of uh, church leaders doing the uh, red bead experiment. Oh. Uh, hmm. So again, you sit there and say, well, wait a minute, you know, how do these things apply to, to uh, nonprofits, and it's like, well, you know, they have their own set of cultural issues, their own desire to figure out how to get people to work together. You know, in, in many cases, they have uh, multi-million dollar budgets, uh, and it's like, okay, how do we use these same principles to uh, become more efficient, have better processes, stop blaming each other when things go wrong, and figuring out how to how to work together. Yeah. Um, What's funny, you, you mentioned um, the church and the red beat experiment that uh, again, I'll point listeners back to episode 280, where we talked more about the red beat experiment. The other day, about a week ago, somebody that I've been coaching in a health system sent me and through somebody through their church sent me a chart where they had applied um, process behavior charts or uh, you know S SPC charts to two key metrics, the number of a people, the number of people attending each week and the amount of donations each week. And guess what? They were all, it was all just fluctuating around an average. And they had similarly fallen into the trap of trying to ascribe the ups and downs to different causes that as the red bead experiment would teach us, uh, there, there is no root cause for why attendance was down last week if it's just fluctuating in the realm of routine variation, right? Exactly. And so it's amazing how these same tools and principles apply to, to any metric. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in manufacturing or not. One follow-up I wanted to ask um, before going into talking about the book, you mentioned GE and being sent on a search for best practices and, and meeting Dr. Deming. Um, do you, do you recall, or you, you maybe imagine you, you know, from your study of Dr. Deming, what Dr. Deming would have said about searching for best practices, right? Right. Yeah. About how, um, how important it is to uh, get what he called profound knowledge that you, you didn't want to just go and copy someone. You had to really study the theory behind what they did and then figure out how to implement that theory in your own situation. And I, I talk about this quite a bit in, in my training classes is that, um, you know, a lot of people in the 1970s and 80s sent people to Japan to try to learn what they were doing, you know, best, best practices from Japan. And they would, um, go over and say, okay, we're going to copy what they have done and try to, you know, slam dunk it into their particular organization. And, you know, with usually horrible results. 
because, you know, everything was so different. The culture is different. The uh, history is different. You know, one of the stories I relate in, in the book, uh, and in fact, this is early on, which basically helps to describe how I got interested in this in the first place. You know, one of my GE mentors was one of those folks that went to Japan and, uh, you know, uh, to try to keep, you know, a long story short, because I go into a lot of detail in the book about this. But basically, the bottom line is, is that he was talking to one of the CEO CEOs in Japan. And this guy was super open with him. The CEO was. And finally, my mentor from GE asked him, how much money do you make? And the CEO looked at him and, you know, even in Japan, that's a very rude question, right? And the CEO looked at him and said, why are you asking me such a rude question? And my mentor was like, I'm trying to find some question you won't answer. In other words, why have you been so open with me? Mm. And this was his response. And you got to remember, at this, when I heard this story, I was just a few years out of college in my, you know, mid-20s hearing this story and basically this CEO looked at him and said, the reason I've been so open with you is that we've been doing this continuous improvement and lifting up our employees and working as a team and, and, you know, all of the right things to do, all the, all the dimming things to do, if you will, you know, for over 30 years, you're just getting started. And, and I thought this was important. And, you have over a century of bad management practices um, that you will have to overcome. So by the time you get to where we are now, we're going to be decades further down this road. Right. So you're not a threat to us. Right. Now, when I heard that, you know, again, you can just imagine, you know, a fresh kid out of college, just a couple of years out. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a challenge. And, you know, we're the USA, you know, we're, we're the great USA. So uh, we'll overcome this in just a couple of years, maybe five at the most. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I write in the book that, you know, okay, now it's been three decades. And yes, certain industries have made huge progress and have made huge gains. But there are a lot of manufacturing plants and a lot of organizations outside of manufacturing that are just getting started right. um, or, or haven't started at all. And um, so when I look back on my 25 year old self, I think, Oh my goodness, you know, how naive was I uh, to think that this was going to be a, a quick fix. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was uh, a lot of what Dr. Timming said about best practices is that you just can't go and copy what someone else has done. You really have to study it. And that, again, that's what has led to this book is that for the last 30 years, I've been trying to study how organizations change, um, how leaders change, um, how, uh, how do you build trust? within an organization? How do you get people on board? Um, you know, Mark, you and I have similar backgrounds, uh, different G's, right? I was at GE, you were at GM. <laughs> right. But I'm sure you remember uh, many, many instances, and, and now you're dealing quite a bit with hospitals, but many, many instances where you would sit down with a, a group of executives or even a CEO and start talking through some of these principles uh, whether it's lean or Dr. Deming or Six Sigma or whatever. And they just look at you like, wow, you know, what an idiot you are. Uh, you don't understand how we do things around here. And this will never work in our organization. Um, you know, I've been called every name under the book. I've been, you know, told that lean is a bunch of smoke and mirrors that uh, it'll never work in our organization, uh, that I think in one of the podcasts, I even mentioned that the first time I sat down with a group of GE executives and walked them through the uh, Dimming's 14 points of uh, effectively running an organization, they, they mocked me. You know, they laughed at me. They were like, you, you know, who are you to tell us how to run our 
company. We've uh, been super successful. Right, exactly. You know, why should we change one bit? And and who is this Dr. Deming guy? And like I, I mentioned, um, when we talked about the 14 points, they could only agree on one of them as being relevant at that time. Now, you got to remember, this was in the uh, early 1990s. Um, so we've come a long way since then, I think, but we still got a long way to go. Yeah. Which was the one of the 14 that seemed even okay? Yeah. You asked me that in the last podcast. Uh, and I, oh. I, I, I think it was the you one. Guess? About, you just uh, guess? <laughs> yeah. No, no. I know it was either the, uh, the one about um, that. Uh, I, well, I think it was point 13, actually, the Institute a vigorous program of education and self-improvement. I think they could agree that that was important. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of organizations where, oh, sure, you know, they're, they're blaming the workers and then training the workers seems like a reasonable countermeasure. They might not thinking be thinking about their own ongoing education as leaders, but they might be pointing fingers at others, perhaps. Right, exactly. Um. So, but yeah, one other thought before getting into the book. I mean, when you tell the story about a century of bad management practices, I, I think the challenge with any of these new methodologies, it's not that the new methodology is complicated. It, 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 there's a challenge in unlearning um, what we know or unlearning what has led us. It's either led us to be success, successful in the past or it hasn't gotten in the way. Um, it's, it's a, um, unprovable thought exercise to ask people at one of these companies, well, couldn't you have been more successful had you managed in a different way? There's, there's no way, there's really no way to know. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, um, the, uh, as I was writing the book, I had one of my old bosses be one of the proofreaders and he's, he's a super great guy and, uh, he's in the acknowledgments, um, uh, his name is Scott Duncan, uh, did just a terrific job he, as, as a boss and as a leader and uh, as a proofreader. Um, but even he, you know, as, as uh, great of a leader as he was, and again, super, super terrific to work for and with, um, as he was proofreading the book, uh, there's a chapter on the need to get away from management by objectives. And he said, he told me, he said that uh, halfway through reading that chapter, he had to put it down and walk around his house two or three times to cool down. Mm. He's retired now. That's how he was at home. And, and uh, because it was so foreign to everything he had been taught as a manager. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and he even told me, he said, John, he said, when people read this, when they get to this chapter, they're, uh, they're really going to have a tough time, uh, you know, figuring this out. And I was like, well, good. <laughs> you know, I, huh. I want people to think differently. I want people to challenge the old ways and say, does it really need to be that way going forward? Yeah. Uh, Couldn't it so, be better if. Right. Exactly. You know, again, management by objectives is something that's been around for many, many decades. And um, but it is encouraging. I was I was uh, looking up online and there are actually quite a few major uh, companies that are now getting away from that. So I do think that the tide is turning and uh, and they're starting to realize again. And and it kind of goes back to the dimming red beat experiment, you know, management by objectives is basically, if you think about it, it's using fear to drive a certain behavior towards a artificial goal. Right. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, Hey, we're going to give you this objective. And if you don't meet it, you're not going to get a raise next year, or you might even get fired. Um, versus saying, Hey, let's work together as a team still measure things, you know, that's critically important. Dr. Deming talked about that, you know, it's like, you know, Hey, I'm not, I'm not saying don't measure things. You still want to measure things, but now treat it as a, as a, um, as a team metric, as a, as a customer metric, you know, um, make them relevant to 
what your customer is seeing, and then as a team figure out, all right, what are the steps we need to take to uh, make those metrics improve, and then have celebration points. You know, as you get better and as you improve and you see the uh, percentages go up, you know, have have celebration points as a team. I, I talk about in the book, you know, when was the last time your organization had one of those champagne spewing parties like you see at the end of a World Series or the end of a Super Bowl? You know, when was the last time you had so much enthusiasm and celebration because your whole team worked together to achieve some, you know, nearly impossible task? Um, and how do you develop that kind of um, enthusiasm throughout the organization? Um, so that's, uh, you know, part of why this all came together the way it did. Yeah. So let's talk about the book and the book coming together. Um, I, I asked this not as a, not to imply you shouldn't have. I like to ask authors, why did you write the book? So please take that question. As I'm looking at it in my notes, I'm like, I hope that doesn't sound dismissive. <laughs> why, why write this? Um, it's a good question for any author because it takes a lot of effort and gumption and stick-to-itiveness, if you will, to uh, finish a book. But I was wondering if you could talk about some of the motivations. Um, again, the title is The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership. What's the story behind you saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this? Well, uh, and actually, uh, I'll start at the end and then go back to the beginning. The uh, Like I mentioned, the last couple of years, I had the opportunity to work with organizations outside of manufacturing that are just now learning how to spell lean or, or just learning for the first time who Dr. Deming is. And so part of the reason for writing the book is think how great it would be if these organizations that are just getting started could learn some of the trials and tribulations that we've gone through in the manufacturing world over the last 30 years and hopefully not make some of the same mistakes. Mm. So I mentioned in the book that, you know, my hope is that these new organizations that are just getting started can learn from our past and accelerate their improvement efforts and team efforts and collaborations by not falling into some of those um, traps from the past. So, uh, so then I'll go back to the beginning. Uh, you know, like I said, I've been interested in this now for, for over 30 years. And, um, and I, again, I'm sure you have some really great uh, stories from your past with General Motors. Uh, but, you know, back in the day, and I, and I don't want this to sound like it's one of those stories of, you know, yeah, we had to hike through snow, you know, 15 miles to school every day. <laughs> uh, but back in those days uh, when this was just getting started, uh, there were a lot of barriers to making this happen. And most of them were cultural barriers and uh, the, the management barriers. Um, you know, I don't know if too many people today you know, have to worry about things like, uh, you know, their cars being keyed or their tires being flattened. Or like in one case, when I was finally able to convince one of the union leaders to join one of our improvement teams, he came up to me after three or four meetings and said, you know, John, I just need you to know that ever since I started coming to these meetings, I'm now getting daily death threats. Yeah. Um, because back in those days, there were so there was so little trust, uh, so little um, collaboration that everybody assumed that the everybody else was out to get them. Um, and I even relate in the, uh, one of the stories in the book about how, you know, in one case, we thought one of the teams was doing a really great job, you know, very noble their focus was to figure out how to improve the quality of the product. And you'd like, you know, what could possibly be controversial about that? You know, if you improve the quality, you're making the business stronger, you're, you're helping to assure job satisfaction and, and uh, you know, helping to keep those jobs in that location. What, what could be wrong with that? Well, what we didn't realize was, was that 
the um, highest paid job in the plant were the repair guys that repaired the product. And um, they um, at one point were so angry about this group trying to improve the quality that they basically started a riot in our, our factory. Um, you know, and again, I think we've come a long, long way since then. Um, but I do want people to at least be aware of some of the, some of those old stories. So as you're starting this initiative, you can go down and say, okay, gosh, when we form a team to work on this, like, like, uh, let's just say it's, you know, a team to figure out how to take waste out of a system. Could other people in the organization look at that and say, oh my goodness, the only reason they're doing this is to eliminate jobs, right? So if that is a possibility, well, then you have to address that up front and say, look, time out. We're here to try to figure out how to improve how we do things. Um, we're not here to eliminate jobs. And in fact, we'll even commit to uh, no jobs being lost because of improvement efforts. You know, maybe for other reasons, you know, if the economy turns sour, uh, you know, that's a whole other um, issue, but we'll commit to the fact that we won't lose jobs. And in fact, and so back to that story about the, um, about the riot, uh, or not near riot, I should say it wasn't, you know, um, but uh, the management to their credit did step in and say, Hey, um, we'll commit to uh, these repair people that even if they have to be reassigned to another job because we have fewer repairs, we'll keep your pay rate the same. And that was able to address the issue. Uh, and then we were able to move forward. So, um, so again, it's basically how do we take some of the things that we've done? And, and I, like I said, I'm sure you have plenty of stories, you know, how do you how do you get people on board and how do you help make this transformation and maybe avoid some of the mistakes that we've made in the past? Yeah. And um, so some of those mistakes might lead to, um, you know, that old way of management might lead to, as, as you say in the title, um, the facade of excellence. Um, do, do you, do you think, um, do you think the title of the book, I'm curious, and what goes into choosing a title of a book, do you think that might scare away from some readers or, or create defensiveness where they're going to say, well, I, I, that might be other people, but I, I have real excellence. It's not a facade here. <laughs> well, if you think that, or, you know, if somebody were to think that, then the book's not for them because they won't really uh, comprehend it anyway, or they won't internalize it anyway. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late for them. But actually, I did want to come up with a title that was catchy and, and, and somewhat provocative for that very reason, is to get people to think, to get people to say, well, wait a minute, does that apply to us? Does that apply to what we're doing? Um, because, again, I've run into many situations, uh, both while working in the corporate world and now working as a consultant, where organizations have told me, you know, hey, you don't need to help us because we're already doing these things. But it doesn't take long to peel the onion back and dig deeper into what's really going on before you start to realize that it's all fakery. You know, it's all it's 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 a facade. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do. And, and uh, again, <laughs> kind of tongue in cheek, if you will. Uh, the way the, the book is written, um, there's a narrative that carries throughout the book plus key learning points that tie into the narrative. Now, the reason I used a narrative is because uh, I, this, every single story in the narrative is true, has happened at some point in my career, but I wanted to put it into a fictional setting in order to, one, make it easier to read all the way through, and two, to protect the identities of some of the folks, right? Um, one of the characters is uh, Frank Smith. There's, there's two main characters. He's one of them. No one wants to be identified as Frank Smith. 
so basically the, the, the two main characters, Frank Smith and Jim Brown, Frank Smith represents those old style managers I've worked with uh, in the past. It's a compilation of several different people. Uh, but basically Frank Smith is a divisional vice president and has been told by the president of the company that he needs to uh, implement excellence. Now he doesn't explain what that means, you know, because uh, that can mean anything to anybody, right? Uh, so Frank uh, basically goes down the path of um, how can we fake our way to excellence? And you'll appreciate many of the stories in the book, uh, being a, a statistical guy. You know, there's a lot of ways to manipulate data to make things look uh, far better than uh, things really are, right? And, um, you know, one of the examples I'll give uh, in the book, um, they want to reduce their inventory. So they basically uh, quarantine you know, two thirds of the inventory and put it on hold saying that it didn't pass incoming inspection. Well, that took it out of the inventory numbers. And so then the leaders are like, wow, you did a great job reducing your inventory. This is amazing. Uh, so then they got credit for reducing inventory when in fact nothing had changed and, and in some cases it got worse. So there's a lot of things Frank does, um, to make it look like he's doing the right things. And in fact, you, you realize it's just all fakery. The other, the other character, Jim Brown, he, uh, again, he represents a lot of folks I've worked uh, for and with that are, are trying to do the right thing. He's new to the company. He's also a, a divisional vice president and, uh, he's, he's younger in his career, a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, like I was, you know, that naive guy that went, you know, wants to change the world overnight. And uh, he inherits a staff that uh, has been working for old style management for many, many years. And when he proposes this path of trying to get the employees involved, trying to be more trusting and collaborative and eventually wanting to start empowering people, they just lose it you know it's like they become the biggest blockers to change so he has to first figure out how to overcome their resistance then he has to start figuring out how to get the employees on board because they also have had many years of lack of trust uh so it kind of walks the reader through all the steps he goes through to win them over uh, of course there's, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes he thinks he's making progress and then something will happen that'll drag it back backwards. Um, but he fights and he fights and he fights and he eventually does start to get people on his side and, and, and uh, starts to see the improvements happening. Uh, and then, like I said, you know, that's the narrative. The lessons learned is the other half of every chapter and it basically says, okay, you know, this is how you can actually apply this to your own organization. Here are the steps. Here's here's uh, what to do. How how you might want to approach this or that, um, and that way it becomes a, a, a you know a practical roadmap to helping get an organization from that old style management all the way to um, collaboration and empowerment. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we talk about that facade of improvement or fake excellence or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'm reminded of um, Peter Schultes, maybe he's the original source who said, you know, when you hit set a target and you're, you're challenging people to hit the target, there's three things that can happen. One, people can distort the system. Two, they can distort the numbers. Three, they can actually improve the system. And I mean, we've all seen distortions. Um, like you said, uh, when I was at General Motors, there was uh, a lot of machined engine block scrap um, parts that had been, um, that were defective to the point where they, they couldn't even be repaired. And, you know, at some point someone was going to have to take the hit by um, taking those out of, um, you know, they were just going to have to take the hit by scrapping it out. And so they kept the scrap rates down 
by like literally hiding all of that scrap material. There was a part of the factory that was under construction and there were these, you know, thick hanging construction curtains and there was all of, all of that inventory, like just kind of back behind the curtain and, um, you know, a different example of, you know, somebody might have, I don't know if they would have gotten a pat on the back, but they would have avoided being chewed out for having um, the actual high scrap rates that they, that they had. That's, that's exactly right. You know, uh, Dr. Deming talked a lot about the need to drive out fear and fear causes good people to do stupid things. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's not just to protect themselves it's to protect their team or their organization. You know, it's like, you know, Hey, I'm not going to, um, put my team at risk because I believe in the people that work for me or part of my group. So, uh, I'm willing to do something really, you know, idiotic in order to protect my team. Um, and, and that happens more frequently than people think. Um, and it's, it's a real shame. So that's the part of it. You know, it's like, how do you develop a culture that, gets rid of that fear, that fear of, of, of change, the fear of failure. So if I have a fear of failure, then I'm not going to try new things. You know, the fear of being, um, um, you know, chewed out because something went wrong. Uh, you know, one of the chapters in the book, we talk uh, quite a bit about values. What are the key values of one of these um, collaborative organizations? And one of the values I list is the, uh, um, the willingness to let people fail right? and, and almost to the point of celebrating failure, because if you, uh, if you fail at something, <laughs> that means at least you tried something new, something different, and you're going to learn from that. And then that'll help you figure out a better way to do it again in the future. Um, so we need to, you know, say, yeah, of, of course you want to, follow a prescribed methodology. You don't want to just, you know, haphazardly change things, but uh, as long as you've done your work, as long as you've done, you know, uh, the, the plan, do check act or plan, do study act, you know, as long as you follow a methodology, then we want to celebrate the fact that you tried something and, uh, and then pick up the pieces if it didn't work and try something else. Um, so that's critically important uh, in changing the culture. And, and again, you know, Jim Smith or uh, Jim Brown, the, the, the hero in the book, he uh, uh, has to convince people that it's OK to go down that path and try things. And um, and of course, there's great resistance uh, because they you know, one of the one of the employees, when when someone first asks her for her thoughts on how can you improve this process since there's no trust her reaction is wait a minute are, are you going to take credit for my ideas so you can get your own promotions uh, or are you going to use my ideas to fire you know to, to, to eliminate a job and then I'm going to get blamed for that why would I share with you any of my ideas uh, and this uh, manager um, looked at her and said Wow, that's a great question. You know, I mean, you know, you're right. We 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 have no credibility, and and uh, uh, we have, you know, we've built zero trust. So, you know, and then finally they work it through, and she says, "Hey, here's my commitment to you. I, I'm going to make sure that we do these things with your ideas, so that um, so it's done the right way." And that finally gets this employee engaged and ultimately becomes, she ends up becoming a champion to uh, uh, helping make the transformation. Um, but, you know, people need to realize that it, it's not easy. It takes a lot of uh, fortitude to change the culture. It takes a, a very thick skin. Like I said, as, as I'm sure you've been um, put in situations where you've been mocked and and laughed at and and people have said you know all the reasons why it's not going to work and you just have to keep pounding away until it it finally sinks in and and the the change happens yeah so one of the other um sort of core frameworks in the book i'm wondering if you, you could touch on a little bit is 
four different styles of leadership. You, you sketch them out as the crisis leader, the idea gathering leader, the team forming leader, and the empowerment leader. Uh, can you maybe kind of compare and contrast? Is there a progression in leadership styles? Is there a leadership style that does this work up to the empowerment leader, which is, uh, I'm guessing, what you would call the best style of leadership? Or is there more to it than that? Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's really is a progression. It's, it's a bit of a roadmap. And um, the reason that I've been so interested in that question, the question you just asked, is when you do read through Dr. Deming's 14 points, he uses the word leadership quite often, right? So like his second point, adopt the new philosophy. We are a new economic age. Western management must awaken to the challenge must learn their responsibilities and take on leadership for change. Uh, and like point seven, institute leadership. Um, but he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about what that means. You know, what, what does leadership really look like? What is it? And how is that different than what people have been doing in the past as far as, uh, you know, what I call in the book old style management? Um, you know, the, the, you know, there's been many, many articles written about the difference between managers and, and leaders. So I won't get into that too much. But again, my my thought of an old style manager is someone who basically uh, does the opposite of Deming's 14 points. So basically uses fear to make things happen, feels like they need to be in complete control, uh, feels like they need to be the one putting out fires. Uh, you know, basically that all the decisions need to be run through that manager. Um, and you'd ask, well, why? Why is that so important to that group of people? Well, because up until recently, that was the way they got noticed and got promoted, right? It was the people who looked like they were the most in control and had the most, um, you know, uh, decision-making uh, responsibilities, those are the ones that got promoted. Whereas a good leader, if you think about it, you know, a good leader is going to basically form teams with their employees, train their employees, coach them, mentor them, uh, provide a vision of where things need to go, uh, and then give that team the tools they need to be successful give them the data they need to be successful with, uh, allow them to make mistakes along the way, allow them to learn and grow and ultimately, you know, uh, run a small part of the organization. Well, at that point, that leader is going to be playing a very much behind the scenes role. They're still very busy. And I, I kind of walk in the book, a tip, what a typical day might look like for a, a very collaborative leader. They're still very busy, but they're not putting out fires as much. They're not making all the decisions. They're not uh, controlling and coercing using fear. And it would be very easy for a CEO when it comes time to uh, make promotions to go, well, you know, gosh, that part of the organization's really running great. But, you know, I haven't seen Mark do anything. So, uh, you know, maybe Mark really isn't the, as good of a manager as I thought. So let's, you know, uh, promote someone else. Hmm. Um, so you stay under the radar by having things run smoothly. Exactly. And, and having the team do a lot of the, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, work that's closest to the process. Um, so, that's the reason for the second part of the title of the book, uh, defining a new normal of leadership, is that at some point we've got to get our board of directors and our CEOs to um, realize that they're promoting the wrong people, uh, that they need to take a much different look at who are the true leaders in their organization and uh, and figure out how to identify those folks uh, who might be behind the scenes and get them 
um, moved up the, the corporate chain. Um, now, just recently, and I know you tw you've tweeted about this a couple of times, right? Just recently, a group of CEOs uh, came out and said that uh, they wanted to start looking at other things other other than just making profits. Uh, they wanted to start looking at you know how to uh, you know meet customer needs and meet their employees' needs and meet their suppliers' needs. And I hope they're sincere about that. Uh, Again, I'll believe it when I see it, um, but uh, maybe that's the beginning of some CEOs that are truly interested in doing it the right way. Um, and so, you know, kind of keep our fingers crossed there. Yeah. So, and, and you talk about that statement, it was put out by a group, I think called the Business Roundtable. Right. Um, people can Google that and it's been in the news. But you, you mentioned boards, and, and maybe we can talk about one other dynamic that you you touch on in the book um, of, of new leader coming in and undoing the progress or the transformation that had already occurred. You ask, um, you know, I think a thought-provoking question, why consider starting down the path of achieving excellence if failure causes so much pain and damage? And, and I guess you're defining failure there as new leaders coming in and re reverting back to traditional styles. Can you, can you talk about that? Right, exactly. I mean, again, just, just imagine that, let's say a, a divisional vice president or even the, the uh, leader of a particular function within an organization. You know, let's say that I'm the new uh, purchasing manager and I decide to go down this path and I'm, I'm, uh, developing my employees, I'm giving them the training, I'm, I'm uh, helping them become a team, I, I start giving them team metrics, we start celebrating as a team, we start seeing improvements, uh, the customers, you know, our internal customers are, are thrilled with our new performance uh, that we've achieved. And then, um, and then it's, you know, I decide to take another job somewhere else. If the uh, if my boss's boss doesn't know what we've done there, they're very likely to replace me with what they're used to hiring, which are could be an old style manager. Now imagine, and I've seen this happen several times. Imagine working as one of those employees. You for the first time you've been listened to. Your ideas have been listened to. You've now got some trust built with your with your boss, you're excited about the improvements that you've made. You've seen how we've, you know, eliminated a lot of waste in the system, and everything is is uh, uh, going down a, a very good path. And now, all of a sudden, your job satisfaction starts to improve. Your morale's much higher. You're excited to come to work every morning, and boom! All of a sudden, you've got an old style boss that has taken over the organization. Um, it's amazing to watch how quickly that group falls apart. I mean, like I said, I've, I've, I've been there several times when that has happened uh, and it's painful. I mean, it's painful to watch. I've, I've um, seen that. Um, I've heard and you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who've had that rug pulled out from under them in healthcare when a new leader comes in. Their effort, um, their efforts, and, and, and years of, of working toward this new style of leadership um, gets undone really quickly. And I've, I've had some people ask, like, "Well, how how is that possible? If people have been trained and lean, and they're doing it, I mean, they're they're going to keep doing it, right?" I'm like, "Well, well, no. I mean, a new leader can come in and very quickly impose their will on the organization, right?" That's exactly right. You know, uh, um, they can. Uh, you know, if, if the old leader has gone from individual objectives to team objectives, hey, I can put back in individual objectives tomorrow. Uh, and if I've built a culture around driving out fear, heck, in the very first staff meeting, all I have to do is say, if you don't hit your individual goals, uh, you're fired. 
boom, all of a sudden, okay, <laughs> uh, the rules have changed. If I want to survive in this organization, I've got to change with them. Uh, and we go back now, uh, again, I've seen this happen in several organizations and what tends to happen is, is those people within the organization that have truly bought in will leave. Yeah. Right. I see that. I see this happening at other organizations. Yeah. yeah. They'll sit there and say, you know what? I really think this is the way we should do things. This is exciting. This is, I've, I've felt better about my job than I have in years. I'm either going to stay and become extraordinarily bitter and to the point of where, uh, like I said, the, the morale might actually be worse than when before we started, or I'm going to leave and the good people are going to leave because they can find jobs elsewhere uh, pretty quickly and they're going to seek out organizations that match closer to what they are, what they had just experienced. So uh, both both are extraordinarily damaging to the organization. And that's why it's so critically important that everybody from the CEO all the way down uh, buys into this. You know, uh, too many times I've heard the following statement, and I'm sure you have as well. We're going to start at the bottom and hope that it uh, changes the minds of the top. That rarely happens. Um, so that's why this book is really written for the future leaders. I don't know if the current leaders will, uh, will get much out of it because I'm not sure that they're gonna be willing to change, but for future leaders that uh, really wanna do it the right way, uh, I even mentioned in the book, you know, at some point we need to change, like, how MBAs are structured. Um, you know, the, these philosophies, you know, how, how many MBA courses are built around Dr. Deming's 14 points? Uh, when, I, when, when I was in business school, I reread parts of Deming's, uh, Deming's works where he, where he ripped business schools. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think you know, I was in business school. 20 years after he wrote some of this. I'm like, yeah, I think, he, I think he was right. So I tried to go into business school eyes wide open, but again, I was fortunate to have that pre-existing exposure to Dr. Deming that most people don't have. Same here. Uh, when, I, when I got my MBA, uh, you know, I actually pushed back on several of my professors to say, wait a minute, you know, yeah. uh, how does that help the system? You know, how, how, uh, how does that help... Uh, you know, how, how does that help change the culture? And uh, it was like, you know, this is accounting. What are you talking about culture for? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. well, you know, uh, there are, are uh, there are a lot of connections there. Um, so we'll yeah. see. Hopefully, hopefully this book will will have a uh, an impact. Yeah, I hope so. Um, you, you might appreciate a quick story. When I was in business school at a program at MIT called Leaders for Global Operations, there were a number of us who had backgrounds in, you know, lean or TQM or more progressive management styles. And a couple of us really pushed back on an economics professor who was basically teaching what we thought was the outdated concept of, um, you know, optimum quality levels. That at some point, quality is too expensive and it's not worth it anymore. And we... We challenged him enough on that. He basically said, okay, look, we need to schedule some office hours time to talk but, about this. But we never, we never did convince him that, you know, he had this false assumption that better quality inherently costs more. And we're like, well, in our experience, that's not true. Why are you teaching that at a top business school? Well, you'll very much appreciate one of the subchapters. It's titled, um, you know, why strive for 100%. And it, you know, uh, I've been told many, many times uh, from, you know, very smart people that uh, the, the, the return on investment, you know, you have diminishing returns. You know, once you get to 95%, well, is it really worth getting to 96% and 97%? And in that chapter, I explained that, you know, if you're not constantly striving for 100%, 
then you've basically told the entire organization that it's okay to fail or it's, it's okay to do poorly, right? It's okay to uh, not try to be your best. Um, so you may, you know, you may not ever get to a hundred percent, but that should always be part of the discussion. It should always be, you know, Hey, um, yeah, we're at 99. How do we get to 99.2? How do we get to 99.5? How do we get to eventually, you know, a hundred? And then, and then I explain that that also is very misleading. I've actually seen several organizations that have gotten to a hundred percent. You know, think about the groups that uh, haven't had a, a safety, uh, you know, an employee get hurt for three years running. Well, that's 100% uh, safety for those three years. Um, so, again, we got to be careful not to rationalize away our ability to get to excellence. Um, so, and, and I also, in, in that part, I do explain that, you know, gosh, some of the best improvement ideas I've uh, seen over the years haven't cost hardly anything. You know, uh, just recently I was working with a group that was struggling. This was basically feeding paper into the process. And it was like, you know, they were struggling and how to get it the right orientation. And it was just like, you know, there's a simple thing you could do. And all of a sudden uh, it takes all the guesswork about how the paper gets oriented. It was a very simple fix. It cost almost nothing. And then all of a sudden they went to hundred uh, percent performance. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, we got to be careful in, in how we, um, you know, set the challenges. And if we, you know, don't strive for perfection, we'll never achieve perfection. Yeah. Yeah, great point. So a great, great point to um, go ahead and wrap things up on. So our guest again has been John Dyer. He's the author of um, the new book, The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership. Uh, as a reminder to the listeners, if you want to go back and listen to John in our first discussion about his experience with Dr. Deming and, and Six Sigma and more, you can find episode 229. And if you want to hear us talking about another one of our favorite topics, the Red Beat Experiment, you can go to episode 280. You can find those in your podcast feed or you can go uh, to leanblog.org slash 229 or slash 280 to find those episodes. Um, John, where can people learn more about the book? Where can they uh, pre-order or order that today? Right. It's called the, again, the facade of excellence, uh, defining a new normal of leadership. Uh, it's available for pre-sale on amazon.com, barnesandnobles.com. Um, and, uh, it, uh, will be out sometime in early October. There will be a Kindle, uh, version or electronic version. Uh, the publishers even exploring the possibility of making an audio book, Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll, I'll find out if that's going to happen in the next week or two. Um, but yeah, amazon.com is a good place to go. Hey, one last, uh, point, Mark. Yeah. There's a quote in the book that when I wrote it, I was thinking of you, you know, you, your <laughs> book uh -oh. measures of success uh -oh. has done extremely well. And, uh, Thank you. when I wrote this line as at, right after I wrote it, I thought, you know, Mark Graven would really like this. Uh. <laughs> uh, so the, basically, uh, you know, in the book, Jim, uh, Brown is talking to his staff and they, uh, have just avoided some pretty major, um, safety issues that have popped up. And, uh, uh the staff asks him, you know, why do you want to focus on fixing these things? Because nobody got hurt. Mm. And, uh, you know, he, Jim Brown turns to his staff and says, well, we got lucky. Ah, yeah. And, but, but here's the, his line. He said, leaders do not believe in good or bad luck, only good or bad processes. Mm. I do like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I thought, Yep. yep. Mark would, uh, would appreciate that. <laughs> I do. And, uh, look forward to, um, being able to read the rest of the book. Amazon says it'll be out October 1st. 
But if people are interested, I would encourage, give, give it a pre-order. That helps John. That helps authors when you pre-author uh, a book that helps with the sales rankings and, and all of that. So John, thank you so much for being a guest again on the podcast and, and congratulations on the launch of the book. All right. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.